We're doing a study in, in the book of Galatians, and today we're reading from Galatians 3, 15 to 26. And this talk is called Free from Relying on the Law. Verse 15. You can read in your Bibles, all the words will appear behind me. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. As we uh, approach uh, an election year and uh, the general election for the United Kingdom is just in a couple of months' time, you'll often hear this phrase banded around, single-issue voters. And they're the people who don't really care a lot for party politics. All they care about is the one thing they think is more important than anything, whether that's kind of immigration or the environment or Europe or, or, or whatever it might be. Now, that can happen in Christian circles too. And it seemed to be happening in the churches in Galatia that there were some single-issue Christians. Often in our sort of day you find single-issue Christians, they get obsessed with a subject like the end times or the book of Revelation or the, the, the nation of Israel today, or something like that, and everything gets filtered through that lens. But the trouble is when you filter a, a whole bank of truth through one particular lens, then it distorts all the other truth. And in, this, in these churches in Galatia, which started well and were, were growing well, and people were coming to know Jesus, there were some single-issue Christians who came in, and they began to start presenting their single issue, and their single issue was this, that, that they had a Jewish background, that is that they were very familiar with the works of God in the Old Testament, they'd been brought up to obey all of the, the, the Mosaic law, and they started to teach these new Christians who knew nothing of that, they were just ordinary people who were just living pagan lifestyles and they'd come to know Jesus, and they said, hey, if you want to be a really great Christian, then you should start following some of the really cool Old Testament stuff like getting circumcised, like not eating pork, like not wearing shirts made from more than one fiber at once. And you can imagine these new Christians feeling like, well, this is all a bit weird. I, I love Jesus, and I thought he'd saved me, and, and, and now you're telling me there's other stuff I need to be doing in order to maintain that relationship with him. 
And this church came into confusion. And this church was getting destroyed by the effect of these single-issue Christians persisting in talking about the importance of the law, Mosaic law, in a Christian's life. They were teaching that to enjoy God's ongoing grace and love, for that to be valid, they must embrace Old Testament law. Now, Paul totally disagrees with them. And he disagrees so strongly, he writes this letter, Galatians, the most strongly corrective of any letter in the New Testament, where even if you were to flick back to the beginning of chapter 3, uh, just imagine being on the receiving end of this letter. If, it's easy to see when, when, when it's them back then. You think, oh yeah, look at them, they, they, they fell into that. Imagine this was read out on a Sunday morning in King's Church from an apostle of the New Testament era saying, Dear King's Church, you stupid idiots. That's how he starts chapter 3, you foolish Galatians. Because they've begun to mix what he regarded as two completely different belief systems. And just to see where he's going, in verse 27, it's helpful to see where this goes before we begin the verses as we work through them. He says this, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Let's just hold that thought for a minute. You who were baptized into Christ, that's a, a euphemism, a description of conversion. of anybody who's a Christian, it's not especially about being baptized in water. That all happened together and was the symbol of the inner change. But it says, for anybody who is a Christian, anybody who puts their faith in Christ, they have clothed themselves with Christ. This is what it looks like and feels like to be a Christian, is to be clothed with the very nature of Christ. You'll remember, if you were here a few weeks ago when I was preaching, I, I, I was actually wearing this shirt, and uh, Jenny Hartley, who's usually such a nice person, she, she just came and just smeared chocolate all over my shirt, and it, and it totally wrecked it. And uh, some of you afterwards came to me, and you, you were very concerned. In fact, some of you were concerned for Julie. You said, I bet Julie will be really cross with you. This shirt is ruined. Julie would like to point out, by the way, that she never has or never will wash my shirts. She never has done that. But, um, but the, the, this shirt was, was wrecked by chocolate being spread on it. And what some people teach is this. Well, to be a Christian, it, it's, it's just to get forgiven by God. It's to have your shirt washed. But the trouble with that situation is we just keep getting the shirt dirty again and again because we're sinful human beings. And the trouble is that whole basis of living is based on us obeying God. So to keep our shirt clean, we have to kind of keep obeying God, to keep our lives right with God. What Paul introduces in this letter and what the gospel is, is so much better. It's saying that God clothes you. Anybody who believes in Jesus, he clothes you with righteousness. And that righteousness is Christ's righteousness. It's not yours. So when he puts... The righteousness on you, it covers up all of your sin. It covers up all of your failure. I don't know if you um, remember the, well, I'm sure you do, the Narnia stories. You probably saw the films and, and read the books when you were a kid and all that sort of thing. And uh, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe is probably the most famous of those uh, those stories, and you'll probably be aware there's a strong kind of Christian allegory that runs throughout those stories. 
And in those stories, there's a powerful moment. Let me just recap the story, if you don't know that story. The story is about four children. Three of them are lovely, perfect children. There's perfect Peter, there's sweet Susan, and there's lovely Lucy. And they're the kind of kids that, before you have kids as a parent, you imagine they're the kids you're going to have with your superior parenting skills. And then there's Edmund. Edmund is a rascal, through and through. And he's just devious and deceitful. But funnily enough, he's the character that we get to identify with in the story. Do you find that as you read it? I mean, who wouldn't want to eat sweets from a powerful queen and go for a snowmobile ride? <laughs> Isn't that what we all think? Yeah, I, I, I identify with him. And then he just lies to cover his tracks. And, and before he knows it, he sold his soul to this wicked witch of Narnia. And he's sentenced to death. And there's a problem. And you know the story, the king of Narnia, Aslan, he does a deal with the queen. And he says, well, if you, if you let the rascal go, then you can kill me instead. And that's a powerful moment. But do you know the bit I find most powerful of all in that story? And you may have missed it. It's at the end of the story. You see, when the whole story is about the rescue of Edmund, about Aslan laying down his life for him. And then at the end of the story is a battle. They defeat the bad witch. And all the children, all the three good children, play their part in the battle. There's Peter and Susan with their swords and bows and arrows. There's Lucy who's kind of healing the sick. And Aslan comes to the four children at the end, and he makes them kings and queens of Narnia. And he says, Peter the Magnificent, Susan the Gentle, Lucy the Valiant, all of them are being commended for their effort. And you can read back through the story and think, yeah, I get that one. Absolutely right. She, she did that and he did that. And he comes to, to Edmund and you think, what's he going to say? And he names him King Edmund the Just. And you kind of think, what? <laughs> Where does that come from? He did everything wrong. Yet he gets commended by the king as being just or righteous. It's exactly the same illustration. And it's, it's a name conferred on him, not because of what he's done, but because of what the king says about him. He becomes a king of Narnia because Aslan says, I've paid the price for you, and now you are righteous. You are just. This is what it looks like for you to be a Christian. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter if you've just got a little speck of dirt up here or a massive amount of dirt all over you. This is what it looks like. It means for God to declare you just, to declare you right. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he does that for you forever. Isn't that amazing? When we sang that song earlier on, if, and if our God is with us, then what could ever stop us? If you read the original context of those verses in Romans 8, it's entirely in, within the subject of being justified by faith, being made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the point. If God declares you right, if nothing in all eternity, if the devil or no sin or no law can ever be made once you are a Christian that can evict you from heaven's court and being with Jesus forever, then what could ever stop us? 
That's how powerful God's work in your life is to save you. That's how powerful his work is in your life to make you righteous. And it's through faith. And the problem with these Christians in Galatia is that they had taken a very narrow view on Scripture. They needed to see the bigger picture. They'd been focusing on Moses. Paul says you need to zoom out. And so he takes it back to the main character of the Old Testament, who is Abraham. There's only two characters in the Bible that have monumental significance, he says, in these verses. The first is Abraham. The second is Jesus. It's Abraham and his seed, Jesus, the one who would be the ultimate descendant of Abraham. Now, these verses that we read, they may initially appear complicated, and and some of them are, but I'd love us just to try and work our way through so we can understand what this means. So he says, verse 15, he said, I'd like to take an example from everyday life. So uh, let's start with with, with an easy one. He's talking about a will. So he says, says, just as with a, uh, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, the, the word for covenant, it might say it in your Bible, is will. He says, when somebody writes a will, it can't be changed once they're dead. Let, let's, say, let, let, let's say Aunt Agatha is a rich auntie of yours, and you are, you are deeply loved by Aunt Agatha. And you have a sister, and dear Aunt Agatha dies. And you get called to the reading of the will, you and your sister. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, you know what, me and Aunt Agatha got on pretty well, and my sister really didn't care a lot for her. But when the will gets read, you find out that Aunt Agatha split everything equally between you. And you might say to the executor, the person reading out, they think, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. I, I had the relationship with Aunt Agatha, and, and she didn't really do anything for her. And the executor would just say, well, it's what the will says. This is exactly her intention. I, I'm powerless to change it. Something like a will cannot be changed. It's powerful. It's, it, and what Paul is talking about in these verses, he says, well, God made a promise to Abraham. 1,500 years before Christ, God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise was that if Abraham would believe God, then God would bless all the nations of the earth through his offspring. Abraham was a pagan. He didn't know God. He didn't know God's ways. He, he was selected by God. His part in the covenant was this. He had to just believe God. God says, I'd like to use you to bless the entire earth, Abraham. Are you up for that? And he says, yeah, I'm up for that. I believe. And that was credited to him as righteousness, it says in Galatians 3, verse 6. Because he believed that, that, that counted as something in terms of righteousness. It was a belief, it was a faith-received righteousness. Now, Abraham's part was to believe God. Now, the law came along 430 years later. That's what these verses say. And what people began to conclude was this. The law came, and and it was pure and holy. It was received as a gift from God. It was a way of God showing humanity what his holiness looked like and what his standards were. 
And here's what people began to think. They said, well, okay, God made that promise to Abraham that the nations will be blessed through your offspring if you believe in me. He says, but now there seems to be conditions attached, the condition of obedience. So you have to obey these laws in order for that promise to be fulfilled. And this got carried on, one generation to another. So now these Christians are thoroughly confused. They, they believe in Jesus, and they say, well, what about the law then? And what about all this stuff in the Old Testament and Moses and, and the stuff that he told them to do? Should we be doing that? Maybe you've asked that question yourself sometimes. Well, verse 17, he answers that question. He says, well, he says, the law doesn't set aside the covenant previously established and do away with the promise. He says, just because the law got introduced, that didn't have any impact on the original promise made. The law is a completely different way of relating to God. The law says, if you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, then you will be under a curse. Verse 18, Paul says, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. What's this picture behind me? Two circles. Venn diagram. Thank you, Alan. It's, it's always a Venn diagram, isn't it? Whenever a preacher says, what are these circles? It's always a Venn diagram. You should know that by now. We've, we've done this many times. I thought we knew each other. But. Um, so let, 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 me, let me just... Just if, for some of you who, who kind of are just a bit rusty on your higher grade maths, here we are. Here's, oh, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Here's a, a Venn diagram. Now, let's suppose, for example, that this circle, the contents of this circle represents everybody in this room called Dan. Okay? So how many of us are there? There's me, there's Dan. There's Danny, who is also on the stage today. In fact, is that the three of us? And, and there's, there, there's, uh, there's another Dan there, Dan Warburton and uh, Daniel Tweets. So I think there's five of us who are, who are Dans in this room today. And uh, all the rest of you are not Dan. So you're outside of this circle. Now, let's suppose there's another group here. And we're going to call this group Hudson. And... To be in this circle, you just have to have the name Hudson somewhere. So anybody in that category? No, you're all in the children's work or doing kids or something. So there's six of us here in this building today who are in the Hudson category. Now, if we were to overlap these circles, I'm just going to mess with your head here, right? If we were to overlap these circles, and this is Dan, and this is Hudson, and there's, I think we've said five people in that category, and there's six people in that one. How many people here today are in this category? One. Me. Wow, I'm unique. It's amazing, isn't it? So, right, let's get back to what we're talking about. That was just for fun. So, funny idea of fun, isn't it? So, here's the two circles that Paul is talking about. He says, this circle here is people who think they can get right with God by simply obeying God and doing everything he requires. So it's obedience. And this circle here is 
to do with those who believe God and have faith in God and trust him to give them righteousness as a gift. So this is about faith. Now, what these misguided Christians were doing says, well, we think we're somewhere in between. We think that to be a Christian and to be right with God is to obey God. It, it, well, it's to put our faith in Jesus first and foremost, but it's also to, to, to base that righteousness and to base our, God's acceptance of us also on our obedience to him. Paul says... That's not how it works. He says these two things are entirely separate. He says they are actually contradictory to one another. Faith is about believing God only. Obedience, faith is about receiving a promise. Obedience is about receiving a reward. Let me illustrate it this way. I hope I've got some money on me. Let's try this. Get my money out. Here we go. This £10 note, it's a Scotch bank note, not accepted by all taxi drivers in London, but this £10 note is for the first person who believes that if they just come and take it, they will receive it. (laughs) That that was just too quick, wasn't it? Okay, let's let's try it again. (laughs) This £10 note is for the person who washes and valets my filthy, disgusting car sometime this week. It will take you about 12 hours. It's so disgusting. (laughs) First person, come on. Oh, man, I thought I was going to get a free car wash out of it. No, okay. So... Here's the point. One of those is quite attractive. Something free, given, just by believing, by having faith. One of those was unattractive. It, I had to work in order to receive the thing. And, and man, that, believe me, you, you made a right choice not to wash my car. It's so bad I wouldn't do it. Justification by faith, receiving righteousness, is a promise for those who believe, not a reward for those who obey. So that raises this question, which Paul then raises for us, because he realizes that's the question everybody's asking. Well, what's the law for? You're telling us, Paul, that our relationship with God is in no way grounded in obedience to the law. Therefore, why do we still have it in the Bible? Why is it there? I mean, it would make the the Bible in a year program so much easier if we could just get rid of that whole two-thirds of the Bible, wouldn't it? So we can go on to the the next slide now. He says this. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So it had a particular relevance leading up to the person of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And the word in in here, transgression, it, it, it... if you think about what that means, when you have a law and you break a law, that's a transgression. It's to cut across a law. It's to break a law. And there seems to be three, uh, 
three things that the law achieves and does. And it's very important that as Christians you understand what the law is there for in order that you don't misappropriate it, it and end up evaluating your life all the time based on what you do and don't do. Because if you slip back into a life of evaluating yourself based on past performance or present performance, and that's going to shape your relationship with God, then we are slipping back under the law. The law has some other purposes, but it's not for us to count ourselves right by today. Here's the first thing the law does. It defines sin. It draws a line. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I wouldn't have known what sin was unless it was for the law. So this is the first and important thing the law does. It gives us a moral standard. It gives us a benchmark to say, well, if this is what God says is right, then I can see which side of the line I'm on. I was reading an article this week in The Guardian, and it was by one of the sort of new atheist guys, John Gray. And even he made this evaluation. He said, he said the trouble with new atheism is this. He said, he said, we can't come up with a moral standard that everybody agrees on. We have to borrow it from religion, he said, which kind of then defeats our whole argument. In the law, in the Ten Commandments, in the Mosaic books, God sets a standard. Here's the second thing that the law does. It exposes our motive. It proves our sinfulness. Romans 4.15 says, The law brings wrath, because where, the, where there is no law, there's no transgression. Let's imagine that you go to the doctor. And let's just say, as you're chatting with the doctor, you don't totally trust what she's saying. You think, I don't, I'm not sure about this doctor. And the doctor gives you a prescription for your ailment. And on your way to the chemist, such is your distrust for the doctor that you screw up the prescription and you throw it in the bin. You think, that's it. Well, what's happened there? An inner sense of distrust has become an outward action. And what the law does, it takes things that are just inward and unexpressed inward distrust of God, inward rebellion against God, and it turns it into outward rejection because we then start choosing. We think, well, if that's what the law says, I'm definitely not going to do what it says. It exposes the deeper sins of our life. If you've been around Kings, you've probably heard me use this illustration dozens of times, but if, if, you, if you know me, I'm, I'm a bit of a forgetful person, and... Uh, particularly about birthdays. So um, if, if it's been your birthday this week or this month or this year or in the last 10 years and you haven't got a card from me, it's, I just want to assure you it's not because I don't care, it's because I'm just forgetful. And, uh, but, but, but a few years ago, I was greatly helped, or so I thought, that somebody said, well, with the advent of smartphones and technology, you can now just program... So I just got a notification saying it was somebody's birthday today. Um, <laughs> you can now program in all the birthdays of people you care about from now until Jesus comes again on an annual repeat cycle. So now I've got all the people I care about. I've got Julie. I've got the four kids. I've got my nephews and nieces. I've even got one or two of you in here. <laughs> and I thought that was going to be the answer. But what happened? Well... 
the phone started bleeping at me. It started telling me that there was a birthday coming up and I had five days to get a card and post it to make sure it got there in time. What did I do? I silenced it. I thought, I don't want this beeping going off in my pocket all the time. I'm far too busy. I, I, it's not that I don't care, it's just I've got other things on in my life and I can't possibly expect you to respond to this text all the time. See, what that did, it didn't achieve me achieving a higher standard of remembrance. What it achieved was this, me realizing that the primary issue wasn't just the personality thing of me just being a bit of a forgetful kind of guy. It proved that actually I was a guy who, even in the face of having the information, I chose to do nothing with it and do things that I felt were more important. It exposed the more sinister, egotistical motive in my life. That's what the law does. It exposes us and shows us that what we think is just us and just us being kind of normal human beings is actually something deeper and more sinister. Here's the third thing the law does. It, it stirs up sinfulness. It shows us the hardness of the human heart. Have you ever seen one of those keep off the grass signs in the park and thought to yourself, I pay my council tax. This is my grass. <laughs> Nobody tells me what grass I can and can't walk on when I pay my council tax. Isn't there something when you see a sign saying, do not, you immediately think, I want to? <laughs> You think, well, how does that happen? Is it because the law's a bad thing? Is it because God's law? No, of course not. The law is a very good thing. But it, it, when it mixes with sinful humanity, without the Holy Spirit, it makes us want to do something worse than we already would have done. And here's the point that we're getting to, that law was never designed to be the saviour. It was never designed to be the thing of, yeah, all you have to do is keep these things and everything will be fine. What it would do through, through those three actions, it would show us that we didn't meet the mark. It would show us the depths of our sin. And it would provoke us to be more sinful than we thought possible. Do you know the, the UK tax code apparently is now 17,000 pages long. That's all the laws that have been written to ensure that people pay their tax. It started with just a, sort of a few, couple of hundred pages, but here's what happens. Each year, when people get presented with the law by which their taxes are calculated, they employ hundreds of accountants and lawyers to work their way around those laws to make sure that they don't get to pay as much tax as they should. And so the book keeps going bigger and bigger as they build more and more caveats and then they close the caveats. That's what human hearts do. Not all of us do that in the area of finance, I'm sure, but we, that's what we do. We find our way around the laws. It shows us the, uh, the sinfulness of our hearts. Here's the fruit of the law. This is what happens. The law is there to show us that we need a saviour. So the law, first of all, it, it brings us into captivity. Verse 23, it says, Before the coming of this faith... We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. The law imprisons us. It puts us in custody. The, the word has the sense of being like a military imprisonment with armed guards on the doors. The law robs us of a sense of being able to break out by ourselves, 
of being able to somehow better our own behavior so that we can achieve our own righteousness. Here's the second fruit of the law. It actually leads us towards the Savior. The word guardian that we read in the verses is a Greek word, uh, pedagogue, and it, it was the in, in rich families in those days, they would employ or they would have a slave whose sole job was to accompany the children to school and back. And those slaves were held entirely responsible for the children's education. So if the children were dozing off in class, the pedagogue was instructed, beat them, make sure they wake up, make sure they listen to the teacher, make sure they don't bunk off on the way to school. Your job is to get them there. And Paul says, well, that's what the law was to us. It was the very thing that was designed to lead us towards the Savior. Its job was to get us to Jesus Christ. Once you're to Jesus Christ, the law's job is done in your life. The law is the vessel of God's grace to us in Christ. It brings us to him. What's the ongoing role of the law? Well, it's interesting. One of the, one of the uh, prophecies that came from Peter earlier on had this sort of sense of God's engraving in our life. Well, that's... Um, so go on to the next slide, thanks. Yeah. What God does in our life, if we go back to that first scripture that we read today at the end of these verses. It says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. This is the wonderful power of the gospel. So what we think it begins with is this. It's God giving us righteousness as a gift. No matter how dirty we are on the inside, God counting us right. This verse goes one step further, and it says this. Well, not only is it about an outward gift of righteousness but it's also about an inward change. You are all children of God through faith. It's the inner change that happens. You, you know who, who your parents are and who your children are if you were to do a DNA match. That's right, I think, isn't it? Well, if you were to do a spiritual DNA match for you as a believer in Jesus Christ, what you'd find is this, that you are God's own child. You're his son or daughter. And with that inheritance comes the most wonderful thing, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, prophesying about the coming of this new covenant that is different to the covenant of law that they were under, it prophesies this, it said, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. See the intimacy with which God is leading you as a child? He, he doesn't just throw a book at you now. He doesn't throw a book at us and say, well, there you go, just, just keep reading those laws and, and get circumcised and... and start eating those kind of foods. That bit doesn't count for anything with our righteousness of God. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. 
And the Holy Spirit starts writing and engraving the the very promises and the words of God in our heart. And as a Christian, with the Holy Spirit living in you, you'll find heightened sense of conscience operating in your life. Things that you used to get away with and think, oh, I'll just do this, I'll lie about that, and I'll just tell my boss this, that I was sick that morning. Suddenly you'll start feeling like, oh, man, I just feel terrible about that. Why? Because the Spirit of God is at work in you. He's changing you. And he's saying, you know what, it, it, it's not that you were reading a, a verse in Leviticus that told you that murder was wrong. It was this, the Holy Spirit was telling you, you shouldn't live that way. Now, the Bible is a book written by the Holy Spirit. It's valuable for us to to read. Of course it is. But we don't base our relationship with God in Old Testament law. We base it through the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ with a Father who loves you. Lord, we love this amazing covenant of grace. We thank you that None of it is by anything that we can do. Maybe some of you here today need to put your faith in Christ for the first time, realizing that God isn't giving you an obey me type religion, but he's encouraging you to see your inadequacy and put your hope in Christ. Maybe you need to chat to somebody afterwards and go up to the balcony and and do that. I just felt for others as well that It says in uh, Revelation that the enemy, Satan, he, it says he accuses the brothers day and night. And one of the strategies of the enemy in your life is this, he's going to accuse you and he's going to remind you of your inadequacy before God and and your failure before him and the things that you haven't done, the sins that you've done and the, and the good things you've not done. And it's not those things aren't true, but the answer to those things isn't self-defense. The answer is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's to remind yourself of God's righteousness as a gift to you that covers all your sin. So Lord, I want to pray for those who are feeling weighed down by accusation and guilt right now. I just pray, Lord, that you'd help them to don their breastplate of righteousness.